Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Shivana Musa, and I'm the host of New Books in Law on the New Books Network. Today we'll be talking to Federico Fabrini on his new book, Fundamental Rights in Europe, Challenges and Transformations in Comparative Perspective. I hope you enjoy the interview. Fundamental rights in Europe and its protection is far from straightforward. In fact, it is anything but combining legal regimes of the European Union, European Convention on Human Rights, and absolutely not forgetting the national domain with each individual member state. Federica Fabrini's new book, Fundamental Rights in Europe, Challenges and Transformations in Comparative Perspective, addresses precisely what he refers to as this multi-level architecture and the unbelievably fascinating dynamics that reside within. The book comparatively addresses this with the federal system of the United States, thereafter proposing a model that will surely grab the attention of scholars from all corners of the globe. As to the author himself, well, Federico Fabrini is currently Assistant Professor of European and Comparative Constitutional Law at Tilburg Law School in the Netherlands. He gained his doctorate from the European University Institute and has also worked at the Constitutional Court in Italy. He's also coordinator of the research group on constitutional responses to terrorism within the International Association of Constitutional Law and co-founder of the research network on EU fundamental rights. Thank you, Federico, for being here with us to talk about your new book. I'd first of all like to ask you the question of how the book came to be um, in the first instance. What sort of led you to write this book in the first place? Thank you, Shavana, for this question. Um, and thank you, first of all, for the opportunity of presenting this book. Um, so uh, it, it's exciting to be able to talk about it. Uh, the, the book is actually the result of uh, the PhD dissertation that I uh, wrote and defended at the European University Institute. And my background was... Uh, studying and doing research in the field of uh, comparative uh, constitutional law um, with a specific focus on a number of uh, EU member states. And then I got interest, interested into uh, the um, developments that were taking place in the broader context of the European Union. And I immediately realized that uh, the question of fundamental rights was perhaps uh, the most uh, fascinating of all. Um, of course, human rights had been at the heart of um, uh, the literature in the EU law and constitutional law for uh, a number of years when I started doing research uh, uh, into this topic. Uh, but I think over the last decade, there have been uh, some major uh, constitutional developments that made uh, this field of research uh, particularly intriguing. Um, and if I can just say uh, a few more things about it and, and, and somehow just step into the, the topic of the book, um, as you know, the, the protection of fundamental rights in Europe 
uh, is uh, characterized by the fact that three layers of norms and institutions uh, on on uh, the protection of rights are uh, overlapping and interacting with each other. Uh, so as a starter, human rights are uh, entrenched in the law of the member states, uh, uh, but they are also at the second, in a second step, uh, protected in the uh, law of the European Union, and finally uh, through the uh, European Convention of Human Rights, which is an international treaty uh, binding over all the member states of the Union plus uh, other states outside the EU. Uh, now, the um, amazing thing is that um, over the last decade, basically in every one of uh, these layers for the protection of uh, human rights, we have experienced remarkable uh, development and um, human rights have somehow blossomed in, in each and every of these um, layers, making uh, the topic uh, quite fascinating in my view. So uh, as a starter, again, in, in the constitution of the states, we've seen a new wave of constitution making, uh, notably in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, which entrenched uh, new rights and created new mechanisms uh, to protect rights. But interestingly enough, uh, the same kind of development has also taken place in Western Europe where um, uh, established democracies uh, existed already since uh, the end of World War II. But if you pick, for instance, the case of France, uh, it's remarkable how um, the, the Constitution of 1958 has been amended only in 2008 to introduce uh, judicial review of legislation um, a posteriori, meaning after laws uh, are enacted with the aim to uh, protect human rights. So uh, here we have major transformation taking place in the law of the states, all pushing in the direction of greater uh, protection and greater entrenchment of rights. Uh, but at the same time, also in the law of the European Union, we have had uh, major developments recently. Uh, in 2000, the Union uh, drafted uh, a Charter of Fundamental Rights for the EU, uh, which is um, possibly the most, um, let's say, articulated uh, document to date uh, in in uh, in spelling out uh, human rights, uh, which are uh, uh, recognized to individuals, and it it is very comprehensive in its uh, scope since it covers both traditional civil and political rights, but also social rights and a new uh, a new chunk of um, new generation rights like environmental rights, for instance. Um, but of course, the the Charter is not the only uh, innovation in the field of human rights in the European Union because uh, the political branches, but especially the Court of Justice, has also been an engine, uh, a, a fantastic engine in the expansion of uh, human rights recently with a case law which has been um, very, um, um, uh, very much protective of new uh, human rights claims emerging from uh, citizens and uh, society. And last but not least, uh, as much as the law of the states and the law of the European Union has been developing by enlarging the scope of protection of human rights, also the third and last layer of the European human rights architecture has 
experienced profound transformation because the convention, which was established after World War II, but for a long time uh, remained a sort of a subsidiary instrument for the production of rights, has now come to the forefront, uh, especially after the adoption of Protocol 11 in 1998, which has transformed the uh, European Court of Human Rights, which sits in Strasbourg, uh, into a real uh, appellate court on human rights issues for all uh, Europe. And uh, the court has been literally flooded by applications, and its uh, case law has introduced um, key protection for a number of civil and political rights, but also increasingly social rights rights uh, across Europe. So um, I'm sorry if I've been long in, in making this description, but what I wanted to point out is that really the uh, developments taking place in Europe in the area of human rights protection over the last decade uh, have been quite uh, impressive. And I think these raise the question of what are the implications uh, for the protection of fundamental rights uh, in Europe. And you shouldn't apologize at all, because in fact, the European multi-level human rights architecture is precisely the kind of thing that we need to know about. And in particular, you raise certain issues that you um, compare actually with the US federal system. What I want to know um, in relation to what you've just described is why you think a comparative methodology is necessary here and how you make comparisons to the US federal system. Um, in your book, perhaps one particular point would be to talk about uh, what you call as the challenges and transformations, and of course, is something that you subtitle your your book as well. Um, so, so maybe if you could go into a little bit um, about this comparative methodology that you take. Absolutely. Thanks for this question, Savannah. So, uh, well, let, let me just start by saying that um, basically the purpose of the book is trying to understand what are the constitutional implications of a multi-level system for the protection of rights. As I described in answering your previous question, uh, Europe has undergone tremendous transformation. And I think a question that has remained unanswered in the literature is what constitutional dynamics springs from a system in which rights are entrenched and protected in multiple uh, uh, layers of uh, norms uh, and institutions. And, and it's precisely to answer this question that uh, the book um, makes the methodological claim that we need to adopt uh, the, uh, a comparative perspective. Now, if you um, have a look at the existing literature on human rights in Europe, in a way or another, uh, all the literature end up uh, in supporting a sort of sui generis uh, view, which basically claims that the union is a special, uh, exceptional system uh, with no comparison uh, worldwide. Um, I reject this view. Uh, I think certainly the uh, European human rights architecture has uh, a number of unique and specific features, but still there is a lot to learn uh, from the comparison. And in particular, I, I make the case in the book that the federal experience of the United States uh, may provide some enlightening, uh, um, um, enlightening tools, actually, to understand uh, the uh, European system. Um, we, 
why is it the the case of the United States particularly uh, um, particularly suitable for the analysis of Europe? Well, I think uh, there are a number of uh, structural, historic, and normative reasons which make the American case um, the most similar example to the European one and uh, the best uh, comparative uh, example we can take to study the European human rights architecture. Now, the structural reasons are linked to the fact that actually also the United States is endowed with a multi-layered architecture for the protection of human rights, uh, which uh, to some extent is analogous uh, to the European one. As much as in Europe you have... um, multiple layers of human rights protection. Also in the United States, rights are entrenched both in the uh, constitution of the states and in the federal bill of rights. And at the same time, you have uh, multiple jurisdictions, state courts and federal courts, uh, which are um, empowered to adjudicate uh, human rights claims. So to a large extent, the U.S. has faced the same uh, dynamics that Europe is currently facing. Uh, At the same time, from an historical perspective, uh, the U.S. and the EU may be uh, looked at together as example of coming together federalism to the extent that uh, in both cases you had pre-existing units of government with their um, um, with their mechanisms for the protection of rights, which have increasingly uh, joined and pooled their sovereignty, establishing supranational uh, mechanisms uh, of human rights protection and adjudication. So again, facing the sort, the same sort of of, of dynamics. And last but not least, I I argue that there is also a normative uh, sim. Similarities uh, between the American example and the European one, uh, which it's linked with what uh, we in Europe call uh, the idea of unity in diversity, and uh, that in the United States has long been known as federalism. Uh, and ultimately, this idea is that um, a union of state is based on um, a dimension of self-rule and a dimension of shared rule, uh, which applies in the context uh, of unity human rights and calls for a difficult balancing between homogeneity and uh, heterogeneity. Uh, now, the comparison, uh, in, in light of, 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 of this similarity, I think the, uh, the comparison with the United States um, can uh, prove helpful for the purpose of the book. And what I tried to do in the book is use the comparison to develop a model Uh, of what I call the challenges and the uh, transformations uh, taking place in the European system, which is um, the subtitle of of the book, as you uh, already uh, pointed out. And the model tries to answer the research research question uh, I indicated before, what are the constitutional implications of a multi-level system, uh, by suggesting uh, that it's possible to uh, identify synchronic and diachronic uh, dynamics in, in, in a multi-layered uh, uh, regime. Shall I say something about it? or? Uh, yes, that would be wonderful if you could delve into that a little bit more. Okay, thank you for this. So uh, um, very briefly, the synchronic dynamics that emerge uh, in a systems can be conceptualized uh, as challenges. Uh, the starting point of, of my analysis of some synchronic dynamics uh, lays in the um, awareness that, in fact, the member states of the European Union uh, have um, 
different standards for the protection of almost any right we can think of. So that uh, basically for every uh, uh, individual or social claim, we can consider there are horizontal differences uh, between the states, with some state providing a very advanced uh, vanguard uh, standard of protection for that specific right, and other states instead uh, lagging behind. Uh, now, precisely because of these horizontal differences, uh, once uh, the law of the European Union or the law of the European Convention of Human Rights uh, develops and uh, creates a standard for the protection of that uh, given right, uh, we see uh, uh, dynamics of interaction with the pre-existing state law, um, which um, ultimately depend on a second factor, which I try to point out into the book, namely whether uh, supranational law operates as a ceiling or rather as a floor of protection. And what do I mean by that? Well, the, the floor-ceiling distinction essentially aims to point out the fact that in a number of contexts, uh, uh, the standard of protection developed at the European level are only, um, um, are only setting a minimum degree of protection for uh, a given right, and in this sense, uh, they can be considered as floors. Well, when this is the case, uh, the development of a supranational standards leave free states to maintain more advanced standard of protection for that right at the domestic level, but put under pressure those states who do not meet the supranational standards, and in this sense they challenge uh, pre-existing uh, uh, laggard standards existing in some states and force them to uh, raise their levels of protection up, up to the federal minimum. Now, when that happens, uh, we see what I call a challenge of uh, inconsistency, meaning that um, the emergence of a supranational standards um, challenges and creates pressures on uh, the uh, laggard standards existing in, in some states. Uh, the opposite dynamic instead emerges when uh, uh, the, uh, the establishment of a supranational human rights standard in a specific field operates as a ceiling of protection, meaning it sets a maximum uh, degree uh, to which that right can be protected by states. And of course, many reasons may explain this. For instance, the union or the European Convention may be protecting other rights or, or public interests which uh, required a limitation of uh, a given uh, claim. Now, when this is the case, we are facing uh, the, uh, a challenge which is exactly the opposite of the challenge of inconsistency because in this situation, the emergence of a supranational standards uh, do not touch uh, upon the laggard standards existing in some states, but rather uh, threatens the uh, um, the advanced standards existing in, in other states, uh, forcing them basically to lower uh, their protection uh, down to the uh, federal uh, supranational uh, maximum. And when this happened, uh, uh, we face what I call a challenge of uh, ineffectiveness because uh, the emergence of... Um, supranational standards puts under pressures and challenges uh, the effective standards existing in some states. Now, um, I, I'm sure what I'm saying may sound uh, a bit abstract and, and difficult to understand. Uh, in the book, I actually draw a very simple graph uh, which uh, uh, depicts visually uh, how the dynamic, uh, uh, the dynamic works, um, and um, I'm sure the 
reader who's, who might be listening to the inter this interview should be uh, also uh, informed already that uh, while I, I advance this analytical model in the first chapter of the book, I then uh, provide uh, four empirical case studies where uh, this uh, broad framework of, of uh, uh, constitutional dynamics is put into practice and tested uh, with reference to a specific example. Uh, let me just point out as a final uh, note to what I'm saying now that uh, besides synchronic dynamics, there are also diachronic dynamics in a multilevel regime, and this is just an influence of the time factor. Uh, but I think still this has to be featured into the story uh, because it points out that a multilayered architecture is subject to continuous uh, adjustments and uh, readaptations as a result of changes uh, occurring either at the national or at so the supranational level, and that in the long term, this may have profound uh, implications on either the challenges of ineffectiveness or of those of inconsistency. Thank you very much. And I think, as you've just mentioned, you do very nicely in the book exemplify what you're trying to portray in this theoretical framework. Um, some case studies such as the right to due process for suspected terrorists, the right to vote for non-citizens, the right to strike and the right to abortion. And I think these are four good examples that you go into in some depth, in fact, um, in each of the chapters, respectively. But you also question the normative and underlying foundations of already existing theories, which kind of paves the way for what you refer to as the neo-federal theory. And I think in respect to this, perhaps it would be ni quite nice for the listeners for you to, to talk further about these case studies briefly in a, in a practical um, dimension, but also talk about how you relate that to this neo-federal theory. Thank you, Shavana, for, for this point. So, well, I, I, I think the, the main purpose of the book, um, to be very honest with you, it's analytical. So my interest is really in trying to uh, design a model which makes sense of uh, the constitutional dynamics taking place in Europe. And the, the use of a comparative method, as I said, is instrumental to this end and, and the... Uh, um, and the um, challenges of ineffectiveness and inconsistency and the transformation I described to you before are somehow the, uh, uh, the core of, of the analytical model I, I, I suggest. But of course, uh, the, by testing the validity of the model uh, into four case studies which aim to cover quite broadly the generation of, of rights, so I have a case on, on due process, which refers to civil rights, a case on voting rights, uh, which uh, is related to the political rights, and uh, a case on the right to strike, which refers to social rights, and finally a case on abortion. Um, well, using these case studies, I think, um, provide some arguments to dwell into theoretical discussion. And this is what I tried to do into the uh, final uh, concluding chapter uh, of the book, where I summarize the main result of, of the case studies and I emphasize how, in fact, in each of the case study uh, discussed uh, in the previous chapters, uh, the analytical model of challenges and transformation was uh, validated uh, in practice. Uh, but what the case study also uh, shed light on, I think, is that the existing theories on the protection of fundamental rights in Europe did not deliver. Um, 
Now, I would not want to enter into the details here. I don't think uh, we can afford it in the short time of this interview. But in a nutshell, I think two main views have so far prevailed uh, in the discussion about uh, the uh, normative dimension of multilevel protection of human rights. And this view can be uh, summarized into the sovereignist, what I call the sovereignist and what I call the pluralist uh, perspective. Uh, now, the sovereignist perspective has mainly examined uh, the emergence of um, human rights beyond the state as a possible challenge uh, to pre-existing state regime. So they, they emphasized uh, the problematic uh, dimension of a multi-level architecture, but ultimately defending a purely nationalist uh, perspective uh, of right. Whereas uh, the opposite uh, uh, view endorsed by uh, the pluralist movement has taken a very different approach, which uh, actually praised the emergence of a multi-layer uh, regime, the protection of human rights as a possible way to improve uh, human rights Europe-wide. But at the same time, this perspective has, uh, um, in, in some occasions, uh, evaluated too positively a multi-layer regime, failing to notice the dimension of conflicts and uh, contradictions uh, that emerge uh, to it. So, uh, whereas the sovereignist uh, view has uh, ultimately endorsed a hierarchical, uh, a, a hierarchical position uh, which stressed the centrality of the state, uh, the pluralist um, perspective has adopted a purely hierarchical position which somehow neglected uh, other dimensions uh, in the picture. What I, instead I think a theory on the protection of fundamental rights ought to feature in its analysis is the recognition that uh, a multi-level system for the protection of rights faces simultaneously three dilemmas. The first dilemma is what I call the dilemma of identity. And the second dilemma is what I called uh, the, di the dilemma of equality. And the third dilemma is what I call the dilemma of um, supremacy. Now, the dilemma of identity essentially uh, uh, requires to uh, take into account the fact that uh, the protection of human rights is a, in a multi-level uh, regime like the European one ought as much as possible to protect and respect the autonomy uh, and the self-government of each of the constituting uh, units of the European system, basically uh, the states. But the dilemma of identity must be reconciled with the second dilemma I mentioned, which is the dilemma of equality, which makes exactly the opposite claim, namely the fact that in a multi-level system, uh, human rights ought to be secured as much as possible to all individuals living into the same territory without discrimination. And of course, it's clear that uh, identity and equality push in totally opposite direction, and to some extent, uh, the sovereignty view has only focused on the uh, dilemma of identity, failing to understand uh, the uh, dilemma of equality. Yet, these two dilemmas are not the only one. There is a third dilemma, which is 
that of supremacy, and which basically claims that at the end of the day, there must be a moment, a decision moment uh, for resolving the tensions between uh, dilemmas of identity and the dilemma of uh, equality. And here is where the pluralist view, in my view, uh, the pluralist perspective, in my view, has has been uh, not delivering uh, because uh, supremacy has been set aside in much of the pluralist discourse, whereas that's an essential element. Ultimately, uh, between identity and equality, there must be a decision moment on which prevails, and of course, uh, in some cases, uh, the claims of identity might be regarded as more important. In some other cases, the claims of equality uh, ought to prevail. That's not the point I want to make, uh, but definitely uh, any theory, uh, uh, any effort in theory building uh, with reference to the protection of human rights must be able to reconcile these three. And and here is where we get to uh, what you uh, already anticipated to the listener, namely my framework of neo-federalism as a possible way to uh, reconcile the three. And again, I shall stress that I'm not engaging here in the book in an effort of theory building, but what I try to point out is that, as a matter of fact, the only constitutional theory we know that has been able to take stock of identity, equality, and supremacy and reconcile them in a creative way has been the theory of federalism. And uh, the experience of the United States in the field of human rights has uh, provides examples about it. Now, of course, Europe uh, uh, should not necessarily follow the American experience. In fact, it's very unlikely it will, and that's why I speak of a neo-federal theory, just to make clear uh, the divergence and, and the differences with the American experience. But still, it is in the framework of federalism that identity, equality, and, and supremacy can, found, uh, uh, can find a, a comprehensive uh, conceptual and theoretical framework uh, for reconciliation. Thank you very much. This is incredibly intriguing stuff, actually. And uh, when we think of Europeans on one side of the pond and the Americans on the other, we kind of have this very uh, distinct separation. I think what your book does, although you have said that it's not a case of, you know, purely transplanting different theories and, and you know, possibly directly uh putting them in a in a certain context it is about having a comparative approach looking at these continuities and discontinuities be- between specific uh, systems of course and i think that's your book very much highlights the the need for more comparative research i think which is certainly something that is brought to light in the book with regard to your your comparison between of course the the multilateral human rights architecture and and the US federal system. So I think it's fair to say that we've we've run our run out of time for this interview. Unfortunately for me, I'd love to to hear you further on the, on this topic, but of course if you do want to hear more about the neo-federal theory, which is completely fascinating, you will have to go out and buy the book. But I want to thank you Federico for for agreeing to talk to us. Um I hope you have also enjoyed talking to us about the book. Thank you so much, Savannah. It has been a pleasure uh, to uh, speak to you and speak to the listener uh, about the book. And I look forward to further discussion uh, on uh, our future research projects.
yes, absolutely. I hope this will really um, sort of plant the seed for further comparative research on this issue and, and you know, of course, further debates uh, within this field. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you very much to you too. 